And our gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And we'll read verses 1 through 12 this morning. Let's pray as we prepare to hear God's Word. Oh Lord, we ask that you would soften the ground of our hearts. That you would make it open to receive the seed of your Word. That it might take root and sprout, and grow, and prosper with new life in our hearts. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, who came to reveal your character to us. Amen. Hear this word. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you've kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You pray with me and for me now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A couple years back, I I suspect it would have continued if it weren't for the pandemic, but there was a a trend of, of grand proposal videos uh, that were cropping up on social media fairly regularly in, in dramatic places at Disneyland and at sports events. Uh, some man would propose to some woman with lots of people watching and sometimes lots of choreography and all of the things. And there's something delightful about watching a man make a grand gesture, a grand display of his love for his soon-to-be betrothed, one hopes, in the video. And it, as he does so, this, this man gives a, a tremendously valuable gift, often a ring, sometimes uh, other things, as a pledge of his love and a sign of their engagement. And he offers himself to her and invites her to do the same in marriage. Those videos are fun, and the other ones that are fun 
that really started a little bit earlier than that are the, the wedding dance videos where they, they dance down the aisles. Have y'all seen these videos? Dance is an inherently unnecessary motion. It's an unnecessary use of energy. It doesn't serve any function for survival or anything else except delight. Dance is delightful. Well, at least for those who like to dance. I'm not going to show you all my moves today. Don't worry. Why, why is marriage worthy of so much investment, superfluous even, un, unnecessary, unnecessary investment? Why? Why do we celebrate weddings with grand receptions, with music and dancing by dressing up in our finest clothes, often traveling long distances just to be there for a short ceremony and a party? What is it about marriage that for centuries has made it worthy of throwing a grand party? Before I answer that question a little bit more deeply, we need to do something else first. I want to invite you to settle into your pew or your chair or wherever you are a little bit more comfortably. Pay attention to the seat that you're sitting in. Feel the ground beneath your feet. Think about your posture, not to feel shame that you're slouching. But just think about the position of your body. How are your hands? Are they together? Are they separate? Are you leaning against an armrest? Clench and unclench your fists. Feel the strength of your grip. Pay attention to your breathing. What temperature is the air as you breathe in? Is it different when you breathe out? How do you feel today? Where do you ache? Is your body sore from those new workouts you've been doing based on your New Year's resolutions? Are you recovering from sickness? Are you dealing with chronic pain or illness? Think about what you see when you look in the mirror. Are there more wrinkles than there used to be? Do you pay close attention to all of the little blemishes? Do you notice any more your nose or your cheeks or your jaw, your eyes, your ears. When I was uh, in about 10 or 11, um, my eyes changed color. They were blue and they turned green. And we had a guest over and we were talking about eye color for some reason. And I said, well, I, I have these ugly green eyes. And the guy who was there, he had just graduated from college. He played baseball at Mississippi State. He thought a lot of his appearance. And he looked at my eyes and he said, you've got the same color eyes as me. <laughs> he liked his. I, I didn't like mine at the time. What do you think about your appearance? What do you pay attention to when you look in the mirror? Or as you sit in your chair or stand? As we get started, I want you to pay attention to your body. Because your body is a gift. It lets you move. It lets you see. It lets, lets you taste and enjoy things, feel things. It lets you manipulate the world. I can move my notes around because I have hands that function. 
It lets us cook and clean and engineer machines, fashion one thing into another thing. Our bodies let us show affection. What a gift it is to hold our young son or to shake a hand or to embrace in a hug or maybe to offer a passionate kiss. Sometimes we get so focused on our own dissatisfaction with our bodies, with how they look or with how they don't always function as well as we want, whether that's when we're young and we're not as athletic as everyone else, or maybe we're too fond of how we're athletic we are or how beautiful we are. Whatever it is, our bodies often seem to be a hindrance to us. And marriage is one of those places where our sense of our bodies is heightened. When two people become one, often in a manner that bears the fruit of new life, what happens with our flesh in marriage communicates and then acts a much deeper, even spiritual reality of union. What happens with our flesh in marriage communicates and enacts a much deeper, even spiritual reality of union. And that union gets used as a metaphor for God and God's people. Throughout all of Scripture, this metaphor exists that the church will be the bride of Jesus, that God desires His people Israel like a bridegroom desires His bride. And this is how God has always loved His people, even if we make for a pretty terrible wife. In the Gospel of John, this is the first act that Jesus does in ministry, the first sign, what we might call a miracle of Jesus' ministry. God always calls them signs, or John always calls them signs because they are pointing to something about the truth of who Jesus is. At the end of the story, John says that this miracle revealed the glory of Jesus to the disciples. It's here because this miracle at this wedding is part and parcel of the whole gospel. It's a sign of everything that is to come. It starts on the third day. Later we'll learn that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. This is a story of resurrection. It's a story of transformation, of life and joy and blessing. You see, the best thing that this family did as they prepared for the wedding, as they made all of the arrangements, as they organized the priest to come and conduct the service, as they made arrangements for the food and the wine, they invited Jesus. The best thing they did was invite Jesus to the wedding. There in Galilee, in a land mixed with Jews and Gentiles from town to town, it's hard to know which one you'd end up with. Was it a Jewish town or a Gentile town? Right there in Cana, in the middle of all of it, not in a pure place near the temple like Jerusalem, there's a wedding. They're having a wedding feast, and a wedding feast could last for several days, was the celebration. And there was one sure way for the party to end when the wine gave out. And a lot of folks in a lot of places might want to do a lot of hand-wringing about whether or not this is real wine. 
The steward of the story seems to make it pretty clear when he says that most people serve the best wine first so that they can get drunk and then they can serve worse wine. But as we think about that, we, we might miss the way that wine functioned in the ancient world. They didn't have an ice-cold Coca-Cola to offer you. They, did, they didn't even have the delights of a warm coffee to get you going in the morning. You pretty much had two options, wine and water. That was pretty much it. Wine was just a good thing to drink, a, a treat slightly better than water. It was hard to purify water. It was more, more safe to drink wine than water. No refrigeration existed to keep juice fresh over the long haul. So controlled fermentation was the way to go to get something that was pleasant to drink and enjoyable with your meal or otherwise. We know, we know this even if Christians are sometimes uncomfortable acknowledging it, that sometimes for better and sometimes for worse, alcohol makes for more lively parties. Can we all agree to that? Alcohol makes for more lively parties, sometimes for better, and sometimes for worse. But responsibly enjoyed, parties with alcohol are more lively. There's more activity on the dance floor. There's more conversation buzzing all around. There's more willingness for one person to meet another person and make new friends. And if there's been alcohol at the party, when the alcohol runs out, the party is going to grind to a halt. You might as well send everyone out. They don't have to go home, but they can't stay here. The alcohol running out is the sign of the end of the celebration. And Mary senses that it's too early for the party to end, that they haven't adequately celebrated this marriage. And so like Israel crying out to God to come and deliver them from slavery, Mary asks Jesus to help. And even as he resists at first, she persists in her request and mobilizes the servants. Do whatever he asks of you, she says. And so they gather up these jars used in purification rituals, these giant jugs, 30 gallons apiece. You guys have seen a 30-gallon drum? Six of them. And they fill them to the very brim with water, as much as they'll hold. And Jesus says, draw out just a little bit and take it to the steward and give it to him. And when he tastes it, he is shocked that it's the best wine he's tasted. Why wouldn't they have served this first? Everybody serves the best stuff first and saves the cheap stuff for later. What Jesus does is not give them just any wine. He gives them the best wine. And he doesn't just give them a little bitty taste of it. He gives them gallons and gallons and gallons of the best stuff. Way more than they need for the party to run its course. And I suppose that Jesus could have conjured wine out of thin air, that he could have told them to bring empty jugs before him, and, and he could have maybe done his hands some certain way and brought, brought wine up from nothing. But that's not the way that Jesus works in the Gospels. Not ever. In this story, he uses the servants and the, the six jugs and the water. In another story, he uses a boy and five loaves and 
two fish. He doesn't just make a meal out of nothing. He takes what is there and he blesses it. And it becomes bountiful and good beyond our imagination. This is the way that Jesus works. He takes ordinary materials and he does extraordinary things with them. And this is true even for himself. I don't know what's possible for God. Scripture says nothing is impossible for him. So maybe he could have snapped his fingers to save us and it could have cost him nothing. But instead he chooses to take on an ordinary body, one that breathes and sits and stands and sees and tastes. A material body that's vulnerable to death. And he finds a way through betrayal and torture and death to make it imperishable. One of the church fathers points out that turning water into wine happens all the time. We just don't often think of it as a miracle because it takes a long time. A vine takes up water from the soil and nutrients from the soil and takes sunlight from the sky and uses all of that to make a grape. And then somebody picks that grape and presses it out and puts it into a cask. And it takes the heat of the sun and it ferments and it turns into wine. It takes a lot longer, but the water becomes wine. It's not really a miracle, except that Jesus compresses time as he does it. Jesus, the one by whom all things are created, just uses different ordinary things on a faster timeline, this time servants and jugs and everything else. He's the Lord of creation and time and can transform ordinary things into extraordinary things. And his first miracle is to make an abundance of the best tasting, most delightful sort of thing that enables celebration and revelry and dance. It brings life and energy to a celebration of love as two people give their bodies to one another. A celebration that's worthy of his presence, his blessing, his gift. And this is what God does in our lives Paul describes us in one of his letters as clay jars that hold an incredible treasure inside. The gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of salvation, eternal life within these ordinary bodies. It's no accident that the, the story starts with purification jars filled with water. Like the waters of our baptism that purify us. And that water gets turned into wine. Wine like Jesus offered to his disciples at the end of his ministry. He says, this is my blood poured out for you. The waters of baptism become the wine of communion in this story. And the whole thing is a part of celebration and joy and revelry. 
as Jesus turns ordinary things into extraordinary things. And this is what Jesus can do even with you. Even with your ordinary body with its aches and pains and blemishes and beauty and strength and usefulness. Your body that can be loved and held and desired by the Lord like a bride for his bridegroom. In the gospel, the ordinary in you is transformed miraculously into the best wine in abundance. The kind that keeps the party going, the kind that imparts joy to an entire community that is delightful to experience kind of transformation that brings joy and community and revelry and laughter and praise and even dancing. So I wonder, have you done the one thing that the bridegroom did, right? Have you invited Jesus into your wedding? Have you invited him into your life? Have you made him a part of every one of your relationships and every aspect of everything that you do because it is more important than all of the other things for jesus to be there and ready to take ordinary things and make them full of celebration some folks think that jesus that christianity is boring and i think that that's because we focus so much on self-denial which is important But while Jesus is on earth, he he fasts before his baptism, and he fasts before he dies, but otherwise he gets criticized for living the lavish life that he lives. The, the, The Pharisees come and ask him, why don't your disciples fast like John's did? And Jesus says, the bride is here. The bridegroom is here. While while he's here, you feast, you don't fast. And I wonder if we have forgotten the goodness of the gospel that the Gospel of John starts with a wedding, and that the revelation of John at the end of the story of Scripture ends with a wedding feast as well. The wedding feast of the supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus' life starts with fasting and ends with fasting, but during his ministry it's one of enjoyment. And for us, The celebration of baptism is one of great joy. And the one at the end of all things is a feast. A feast full of wine and revelry and dancing and praise of our bridegroom. I had a church member tell me once, I'm I'm not sure I really want to go to heaven if all we do there is worship. That sounds boring. That's because he's imagining it is a wedding without wine. It is going to be a party to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. In the meantime, you should invite Jesus to your wedding, to your life, to your everyday, ordinary existence, and see what he does to make it good and to make it joyful and to make you want to dance. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, forgive us if we have forgotten the joy of the gospel. Forgive us if the 
strife and polarization and argumentative nature of our world right now, if our grief and our suffering have led us to forget what a good thing it is to know you, what a delightful thing it is to be with you, the way that you bring the life to our party. We ask, O Lord, that if we have lost our joy, that you would renew it, that you would gird up our faith such that we could know what it is to feast with you. We thank you, O Lord, that you love us more than even the most devoted groom, more than the grandest proposal, more than the most excessive wedding reception. You love us, and you celebrate us, and we want to be with you. This we pray in your name. Amen.